This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, 15 Feet for Free, a simple guide to foul shooting for players at any level from the driveway to the NBA. And the author is Jim Lee, and Jim joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jim. Morning, Steve. How are you doing today? Well, the title kind of sums it up, and uh, we all know about foul shooting, uh, you know, free throws, as they're called uh, in basketball, 15 feet for free. Obviously, you're 15 feet away. Uh, let me read just a little bit about what you say about your book so everyone understands the um, much more uh, involved than just shooting free throws. Uh, you say, whether you are a coach or a player in grade school or college, the fundamental instruction in 15 feet for free can easily improve players' free throw percentage. It includes tips from some of the best free throw shooters uh, ever and is simplistic and easy to understand the best free throw shooters in the game have a routine. If you want to be one of the best, the place to start is the beginning. Develop a routine or a process. So you're going to go into that kind of, uh, I guess, helping us understand the process. But it's much more than just understanding how to uh, shoot free throws, it seems, because you also talk about your dad and some of the challenges he overcame that were seemed insurmountable. Let's first learn about yourself, Jim. Tell us about a little bit about your background, your basketball background, and why you decided to write the book. Well, Steve, I grew up in uh, Kirkwood, New York, which is just a small town and, uh, you know, probably about an hour and 15 minutes directly south of Syracuse, New York. Uh, there's only about 4,000, 4,500 people there. Uh, my brother Mike and I, used to play in the backyard all the time, and uh, Mike uh, played ball at Syracuse University, and he went up there in 1969. And uh, when we were in high school, we had, uh, you know, we played very well together. I loved playing with my brother. And, um, you know, we were undefeated at uh, his senior year, my sophomore year. And uh, when I got the opportunity to go to Syracuse and play for Roy Danforth, uh, you know, most people now know Jim Bayham is the coach. Uh, coach Bayham was our assistant coach when we were there. But I jumped at the opportunity to uh, go to Syracuse. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons that we went there is our father was a double amputee. So the hour and 15-minute uh, drive, uh, he could still come and watch us play if he wanted to. If we went any further away, it probably would have been more difficult. So, um, you know, Mike uh, Mike had a chance. To, uh, he was like a 6'3 forward. He had a tryout with the Buffalo Braves and the Denver Nuggets and uh, – when I had my shot, I had a chance at, uh, I signed a contract actually with the San Antonio Spurs. It was a make good contract, but, uh, you know, if you read some of my stats at 6'2, 160 pounds, there's not many NBA players like that. Well, Jim Beheim gave you quite an endorsement, a review of your book. Of, you know, he says, Jimmy Lee was the best shooter from 15 feet I have ever seen. So I guess that sums it up right there. You, you knew how to do it. I was a good shooter. I mean, that's I, I practiced at it. I worked at it. Um, you know, you had when you're when you're smaller, you have to do the little things. And uh, I mean, I remember shooting in the backyard. Uh, my brother would bro block every shot we took, and uh, <laughs> like a good older know, brother, like a, should, like a right? good big brother, he did. <laughs> and uh, I remember I would get a ladder and tape a broom to it, and I would just shoot jump shot over jump shot over that, just so he wouldn't block it, and. Uh, the thing is, I was always uh, Mike's younger brother, Mike's younger brother. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, once he graduated and, uh, like, our senior year, uh, we Syracuse went to the Final Four for the first time, and uh, I had a very good tournament. Um, I actually led the NCAA tournament scoring that year. I was on the uh, Eastern Regional All-Star team, the Final Four All-Tournament team. And uh, so kind of got uh, – he became my uh, – Big brother for a little while, <laughs> which was very nice. 
Well, that just proves that basketball, uh, sports, very few go on to professional levels, but boy, you learned a great deal that helped you probably throughout your life. I mean, I think basketball and sports is the, is the greatest. I mean, I did not make it. Um, would I have liked to make it? Sure, I would have. But at some point, you know, and it's kind of hard to like admit to yourself, okay, I wasn't good enough to get to that level. And whether it was my size or not, the bottom line was I wasn't good enough. It didn't matter about my size. But the things I've done afterwards, you know, the competitiveness, the des- desire, the dedication, everything that goes into playing basketball carries on into, like, the rest of your life, whether it's your kids, your your work, everything. And uh, I treat everything I do from ever, any employment I've ever had, any business I've ever been in, it's just like a game. It's teamwork. It's a game. You win and lose and, and make it fun. And there are true principles of foul shooting. You've got to obviously do it in a certain way to be successful, and your book is filled with illustrations. Yeah, I've had my, uh, you know, I had the, I've got my some illustrations there with my my daughter, my younger daughter, a friend of mine who's a seventh grader, my son who's now 25, and then you got the old timer myself. And but when the illustrations, you look at doesn't matter if you're a female, a young kid, a young adult, or an old an older person, everything looks the same if it's done properly. And uh, the one thing that I try to make sure that, you know, in the book, the point I try to get across is you've got to develop a routine. And I've actually dedicated a chapter on, I've interviewed a bunch of people, NBA players and uh, former Syracuse players that were good foul shooters. And they had to have like an 80% career average or better in order for me to do it. But I, I wanted to do it in kind of a personal touch where, number one, I knew these people. Or I knew a friend of mine who knew them, so there was a personal contact for the whole book. But as you listen to their thoughts and everything I put forth in the book, the similarities to all good foul shooters are are what they are, very similar. There might be one or two little things, but everyone has a routine. They have a thought process when they go to the the line. And uh, you have to have that in order to... uh, you have to make everything, whether it's the beginning of a game, the middle of a game, or you're down one shooting a one and one with no time left on the clock. doesn't matter. It's, it's a 15-foot shot, and you have to do the same thing every single time. Well, and you got quite an endorsement from the president and CEO of Forbes Media, uh, obviously a highly successful uh, business. Uh, Mike uh, Perlis, is it? Perlis? It's Mike Perlis. Perlis. Um, okay. Mike is a graduate of Syracuse University, but uh, when he was, and Mike actually helped, helped me get to Author House to self-publish this because his wife uh, writes children's books. But uh, when he was looking at it, I uh, he kind of took some of the thoughts and principles that uh, and steps that I have for shooting a foul shop. And you go, Jim, I can tie this into business because after looking at this, this is exactly the same thing that successful business people do so at that point i asked him i go would you mind endorsing the book for me he goes i'd love to because he saw some similarities the same thing as as you've got your routine and your process while you're just shooting a foul shot completely different you know avenue when you're running a business but the principles seem to be about the same well, and Bob Costas, NBC Sports, also gives you a, a, a great endorsement. And, of course, he didn't play, but he was there and remembered you at, a, what was it, a Syracuse's first trip to the Final Four? Yeah, he, um, Bob was at Syracuse when I was, and like he said, you know, a lot of my friends say, because it's funny, he writes, he played in the games, I talked about him. Um, yeah, we were, we were fortunate enough to... Uh, you know, to get to the Final Four, Syracuse's first Final Four in 1975. But along the way, in Providence, Rhode Island, in the Eastern Regionals, uh, we have an upset uh, North Carolina, which was a very good team. And we had to be the probably, if not the first Cinderella team, one of them, as far as like real Cinderellas go. But at that point in time, we were playing better than anybody in the country, or as good as anybody in the country. And you know, I was fortunate enough to uh, hit an 18-footer uh, with three seconds left to put us up by one and uh, 
we held on to win the game. A shot you will never forget, obviously. No, and uh, it's nice to have those memories and go back to and like my kids now. They go, Dad, you did this? They go, Yeah, your father did that. <laughs> yeah, your dad did that. Calm and cool in the in the heated moment, right? Yeah, but you know what? And you know what's funny is a friend of mine uh, that I coached against me in high school. Um, they were watching the game, and he goes, "I can't believe Jim just made the shot." And Coach Halloran looked at his buddies and said, "I can." If you guys remember, he goes, "He made that exact same shot from that exact same place four years ago to beat us." <laughs> and he goes, "At the buzzer," and it's like, "Geez, you're right, Coach. I did." He told me that story, and I was just, and it was funny. Was, but the thing was, when I took that shot, and it's almost like the same principles apply when I threw the foul line. I've taken that shot thousands and thousands and thousands of times. So you're not supposed to be thinking there's three seconds left on the clock, you're down one. If you miss, you lose a game. It's just like, oh, good, it's a jump shot that I had in my backyard. Exactly. And We're every, your shot, as they say. That's your shot. And everything else is the same. It's just like. You know, take the shot, and I saw it go in, and it's like, great. <laughs> so tell us about the inspirational story of your dad uh, in your book. Well, what I, wanted, what I wanted to try to do when I wrote this book is I know I, can, I know I can help young kids and even kids that are in high school, and, you know, even if college players are having trouble, I mean, if they can pick up some of the pointers, I made it as simple to read as possible, so I didn't – you know, just cut and dry. But uh, to get me over the hump and to do it, what happened is I, um, my father passed away in 2003, but uh, my father was a double amputee from World War II. He got both his legs ripped off him on patrolling the East Coast. Uh, actually, unfortunately, it was a U.S. ship that uh, hit his Coast Guard cutter on a foggy night. I, similar to friendly fire, only with ships. But, um, you know, he was in uh, Philadelphia Hospital for Naval Hospital for three years. So ever since any of us were born, you know, he never had his legs. But we've—he never once complained about anything. He did anything he wanted to do. Um, so just by watching him, it's uh, people. There's six of us in the, our family, and Mike is the oldest. I'm the second oldest. But uh, people always comment. You, you guys are the most easygoing family I've ever met. But it's almost like, you know, you look at our father. Well, we really can't complain about anything because we can walk around. We can do whatever. And, I mean, back in those days, I mean, three years in the hospital for doing that, and his legs probably weighed each one 30 to 40 pounds apiece. And um, what I've been doing lately is we run a golf tournament as honor, and uh, to date, we've raised over $160,000 in eight years, which we've helped to purchase six vans for the Disabled American Veteran Network in New York State. Uh, we remodeled a uh, consultation room at the uh, VA Medical Center in Syracuse. We helped them lease a bus which holds four wheelchair and eight ambulatory patients uh, for the VA for a two-year period. We've been able to donate... Uh, $27,500 to the Wounded Warrior Project and another $42,000 to the EBV program at Syracuse, uh, which stands for Entrepreneurship Boot Camp for Veterans with Disabilities. And um, through it all, I mean, uh, this was the beginning, I, and I just wanted to find another way to help raise some money for the disabled vets. So I figured if I write this book, I can donate half the proceeds to help the vets. So what I'm going to do with this is um, any proceeds, uh, half of it's going to go to the EBV program. And uh, what that is, it's a, it's a one-week boot camp uh, that they have. Uh, and right now it's through eight. Syracuse um, founded the program. Uh, Mike Haney was the founder who used to be in the Air Force. And then he was a professor at the Air Force Academy. But since he started, uh, they now have seven other universities. The University of Connecticut, Cornell University, Florida State, uh, LSU, Purdue, Texas A&M, and UCLA, UCLA, 
they're all in the consortium. So what it is, it's free to the veterans to enroll. They take about 20 to 30 veterans per year, and it starts out with like a 30-day online orientation, and then you've got a eight-day boot camp, and then you also have after graduation, you have one whole year of access to a professor or a management uh, uh, personnel that helps out at the at each one of the schools. So we're that's where we've decided to give the money because uh, what they found out is if a veteran starts his own business, um, he normally will hire other disabled veterans or other veterans. So um, I just saw this as another avenue to. Uh, help uh, raise funds for the disabled vets. We've been listening to Jim Lee. He is the author of his book, 15 Feet for Free, a simple guide to foul shooting for players at any level, from the driveway to the NBA. Jim, tell us how to get your book. Well, right now it's available at uh, authorhouse.com. You can just go online, uh, or you can go to my youngest daughter has... Um, Put a website together for me, www.15feetforfree.com. You can go on that website. She has uh, a link right to where it can be purchased. Uh, locally, and right now it's only locally at uh, Barnes & Noble in Syracuse, New York, but you can also get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble um, websites. And, um, you know, I think, it's, uh, I think it's got a dual purpose, to help kids, and then to help our disabled veterans who uh, fight for our country. Well, thank you, Jim, very much for helping our veterans. Uh, obviously, we cannot, cannot uh, forget them. We've got to be f- there for them. It's anyone who is in that uh, a cause, we have to salute. Well, thank you, Jim. Thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mama Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriended is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, But She Has Such a Pretty Face. And the author is Kathy Ann Chandler. And Kathy joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kathy. Good morning. Great to have you with us. And a great message uh, with a short book filled with illustrations and a I guess a plea to be accepted, wouldn't you say? Exactly. A plea for people to 
kind of sit back and listen to what they say. Now, tell us about yourself, Kathy, and why you decided to write this book. Okay, I'm a Southern girl, as you can tell by the accent. And I was, when I was a child, I was a little fat child all growing up. And uh, that was going to be, I have a feeling, because I weighed 11 pounds when I was born. And so when I wrote this book, I, um, it had not bothered me until I read in the newspaper in Florida where there was a little boy that was about 11 years old that had um, hanged himself about three days before school started because he was tired of being taunted about being fat. And uh, that just shook me to the very core because I've heard the little taunts off and on growing up, but they never uh, hurt me. And I think the reason it wasn't is because I grew up in a family of fat aunts and fat grandmothers and things. And the ladies always accepted me and loved me and promoted me as, as I was. And the spirit and the heart and the soul in me grew. And when I saw that in the paper about that little boy, oh, I was just devastated. And I needed to stop and think and see how can I help others who are like me. We all know that it's a struggle for some. It's not just about uh, behavior, I guess. You know, there's a lot of folks that just struggle. Uh, You've probably been on a lot of diets. Oh, please. My mother started me on a diet when I was in the sixth grade on amphetamines. And uh, at the time, we didn't know that was going to be something horrible. You know, it was through the doctor. And it was hard. They had to take me off of them. And then the ninth grade, another set of doctors. And then as I was an adult, I went on several that were nationally promoted diets. And uh, I would lose up to 100 pounds, and then it would come back, you know. And a lot of times it made me feel like a, a failure because why couldn't I keep this off? Why couldn't I make this stop, you know? And I had to get to a point where I had to say, I love me. Now let me go on with my character and my love and my caring and let me help others. And it was even to the point that when I was a counselor in high school, and I was a counselor over 30 years, that I started groups of little fat girls. And there were some in those groups that were going to lose the weight because they were, um, I guess, emotional eaters, you know, and they had something had happened in their life that they ate their pain away. Because you think about it, the times that we have the best feelings is Christmas when there's eating, Thanksgiving when there's eating, birthdays we eat. When we do something special, let's go out to eat, you know. And a lot of times when those people were by themselves and they were hurting and sad and whatever, mm. they ate, you know. And so in these groups I had, some of them, the little girls, looked like they were predestined to be fat because families were fat and everything, but some of them weren't. And half of them would lose their weight, and the others learned to love themselves and learn to flourish in the ground that they were planted in. So your title, is that something you heard along the way? Oh, please. <laughs> Every week it seemed like somebody goes, oh, she has such a pretty face. And that's a one, I understand where they're saying that. I understand that they're saying that as a compliment. But to a fat person, when you say that, you say, hmm, she has such a pretty face. There's a big but at the end of it, mm-hmm. or before it, which says, but you're not worth anything because mm. you're fat. So you call them careless words. Yeah. People aren't thinking at all, are they? Right, right. And I don't think... I think a lot of times they're saying it because they believe that they're helping, but they're not. What they need to do is help that child, yes, with their nutrition or help them with their um, exercise or help them with whatever, but don't kill their heart and their soul and their spirit while that child is trying to become the best person they can be. And don't do that to the adult that's already there that's helping. You have no clue where they've been, what they've done who they are, and don't kill their spirit and their heart and their soul. If you watch a child that's being bullied like that, you can see the light go out in their eyes as you're saying those words. And and it's something that each individual person needs to stop, back off and think about themselves and say, well, why am I doing that? Why am I trying to intentionally hurt this child? Why the why the technique of 
I, maybe that's the wrong way to describe these illustrations, but they're done in a very, very specific way. Tell us about why you chose this kind of, of, of illustration and the, and the feeling you get from it. In the book, there are several vignettes of the little child hearing different people say different things. And the little girl is, um, it looks like she's not paying attention, but she is. And every night she goes home and she prays to God and say, please help me understand this. Please help me. And it would be, oh, it would be things that teachers had said or preachers had said or friends had said or just strangers in the community had said. And the child would always go home at night and ask God, help me understand Help them understand me. And in reality, this book does not have an ending. You have to make the happy ending or the sad ending or whatever it is that you deem the right answer for this book. And the illustrations are black and white uh, illustrations, and I'm looking right now at one of them, and and it kind of gives a feeling uh, uh, um, it's not a happy book let me no, say it that no. way it's a it's kind of a lot of despair right right exactly and, that, and the illustrations look that way right and they were purposely made like that to go from lighter to dark you know and it's it's one of those things where you sometimes even when i was at a book signing um there was several people would come up pick it up, look through it, you know, buy it, walk away. And even to the point, there was um, a minister at one point that came up and picked up the book and got to the page where it says something that a minister said, and he put the book down and walked away. And it was like, I know, I'm there too. I have said things before that are not good, that are not sweet. I had to go back and forgive myself for saying things that hurt people, you know, but if you never understand that you've said something that hurt someone else, you might continue to do it. If you pick up this little book and read it and go, ooh, I've done that, maybe it will cause a change in you and how you refer to people or how you interact with them. Yeah, the little girl or the big little girl uh, is hearing all of these terrible things about her. And as she prays, like, in, for example, Dear God, please tell them that my mommy has me on a diet all the time. Right, right. Like, it's not my fault. Right. And, and sometimes you get uh, mixed messages because you're on a diet one day and then your mom makes something great and wonderful for you the next, you know, as a celebration for something. And it's really tough for little kids to uh, go to a birthday party and can't have birthday cake. Mm. Or there yeah. uh, is a big celebration of food, and yes, you can have a salad, and everybody else has pizza. <laughs> you know, right. That kind right. of thing. It's almost like a punishment to the point where I've seen some little children sneak food, and I'm just going, oh, my goodness. You know, please, let's work on the inner child. Yeah. You know, and don't punish them. Let's let's work on this inner child. Let's not make this be such a driving force. You know, food like well, it, with alcoholics, you can try to give up alcohol totally because you don't have to have it. All you know to live, you have to have food to live. Now, how do we work with this? Mm-hmm. You know, what do we do now? You have to have this. So we've got to work on loving that child, making them feel good making them feel um, needed, wanted, making them feel like they belong, then work with the problem. So who is the book Who is the book for? What are we talking, is the book for the overweight child, uh, adult? Is it for others who are saying careless words? Um, it's for both. And as it turned out, whenever the book came out, I've had people who weren't overweight come to me and say, oh, I needed this book. Uh, one lady came and said, you know, I didn't know I was pretty until I was 30 years old. And another one came to me and said, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. And this book affected me. She's, and somebody else said, I lived in the wrong apartment complex. And 
even one of my dearest friends came up to me and said, Kathy, this was, reminds me of when I was the only black child in a, my third grade class. So it not only was for the little fat child, but it's for the little fat child that's in all of us. The child in us that has somebody say something to us that hurt. Something that's a little bit different about us that people pick and pick and pick on. And we have to learn to be strong within ourselves to let that go. But then the rest of us need this book to say, whoa, I didn't know I was doing that. I'm sorry that I said that kind of stuff. And when we first had it, uh, I had it where it was in an envelope. And it could be sent to someone that you might think, they don't really realize they're hurting somebody. Let's send this to them, you know. And so what I really want it to do is to wake us up, to make us think, oh, goodness, I I didn't understand I was doing that. I I have to change me, you know. So a lot of people have to change, and the person who's the target, uh, the the little fat child, has to learn to be a survivor. Exactly, exactly. Because we need every person we've got right now to make this world a better place. And we need each one of them to be an example, and we need each one of them to be a survivor, and we need each one of them to learn to be kind, but to be resilient and to survive. And we don't need anybody taking their heart and their soul and their spirit. We need for people to promote each other. And I wanted to emphasize, this book doesn't have a happy ending, and you talked about it. I mean, this ending, we we determine the ending. Exactly, exactly. And it's not a book that stops. It's a book that has to go on. So for the fat person, they have to go on, and for those of us who maybe have said a careless word, we need to change and go on. Right, exactly. And the book's message needs to go on, whether you're a fat child or whatever else is going on in your life that people would believe you for. We've been listening to Kathy Ann Chandler. She is the author of her book, but she has such a pretty face. Kathy, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can go online to Barnes & Noble, to AuthorHouse.com, to Amazon. It's sold in any of those areas. And um, it's out there and ready to go. And I have had people contact me for part of it to be in their anti-bullying campaigns within their school districts. Thank you so much, Kathy, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903-617-6899, 903-617-6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. 
Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Three Keys, and the author is Don Ackerman, and Don joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Don. How are you doing, Steve? Well, great to have you with us. Uh, this is quite a, f- a piece of family drama, as you put it. Let me read what you've written, just set the stage for our discussion for everyone. You say, what does a man do if forced to choose between all that he believes in and all that he loves? The Three Keys is a tense family drama which tells the inspiring story of a highly principled man torn apart when two irreconcilable worlds collide. Thank you for again for being with us, Don. Now, what was the motivation? What was the spark that pushed you down this kind of a plot line? When I saw all the unhappiness, wrecked marriages and broken families amongst my friends, neighbors, co-workers, even relatives, I wanted to do something about it. Uh, the divorce rate was skyrocketing. Why? What was the cause? And I don't know why, but I was a bit of a father confessor to a number of uh, friends and co-workers. Uh, employers would pop their head into my office doorway and ask if they could talk to me. And uh, of course I, I would say, of course, yes, come on in. And when the door closed behind them, of course, I knew it was going to be something personal. And invariably, it would be something about their marriage, uh, their spouse cheating on them, or once in a while it was they uh, cheating on their spouse. Uh, it, it became clear to me anyway uh, that they was, people were so caught up in, in a materialistic society where money and sex and material things were supreme that they had totally lost a, a sense of honor, a sense of right from wrong, a sense of decency, at least not everybody, but a lot of people. And it seemed, uh, it seemed that uh, uh, love, the most basic and natural human need, uh, fundamentally essential for emotional health and happiness, had been overpowered by selfishness, greed, and self-gratification. And yet, People were confused as to what had gone wrong in their lives. So I, I decided to sit down and write a story demonstrating all this through the events experienced by a fictitious married couple. Although, like I said, uh, from talking with a lot of uh, friends and uh, co-workers, many of the ideas came from real-life observations. And I, I can say that I am not the first to try to uh, pinpoint why all the unhappiness. Uh, Colin McCullough, in her magnificent novel, The Thornbirds, she wrote a tremendous passage in that book. Uh, shortened is what she said. It's, we can know what we do wrong even before we do it. Don't you see? We create our own thorns and never stop to count the cost. Mm-hmm. And this is what people do to themselves. Mm-hmm. And this is what, why I, I was wanted to help people. And that's what triggered writing the book. Well, it sounds like the type of plot that obviously people will really be attracted to because uh, that kind of drama is all around us today. And, and this James Schroeder. Now tell us uh, about James and what makes him tick. Well, Jim was, was, and he grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania, rural area. And uh, at 18, he moves to northern New Jersey, which is really within the sphere of uh, the metropolitan New York area. And uh, he becomes a professional land surveyor. He marries Lensley and Dorham, and uh, they have a son. Derek, and a daughter, Lisa. And uh, he hooks up with a civil engineer, forms a partnership, 
that the two professions complement each other. Life is good <laughs> until his wife has an affair. And he being, having been brought up as by very traditional, conservative, and even somewhat religious parents, he's ill-prepared for this kind of, uh, this kind of thing, and it just devastates him. He's, he's an honorable man, you know, and, and, uh, highly principled, and he, he, he has trouble dealing with it. And Leslie's the only woman he's ever loved. That's true. That's true. That, that point, I believe, is made in the book, yes. So that makes it, you know, obviously the big question, why would she betray him? Well, that's, you'll have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That's a, that's a big answer in the book, then, you know, big yes, part the of the plot. Yes, the in the book, yeah. Yeah, so... You say he's consumed with anger and depression, uh, doesn't know if he's really where he's at in life anymore. So this whole really thing turns him upside down. But that's just the beginning, right? That's just the beginning, because at the same time this, this happens to him, and he's trying to wrestle with that, uh, his wife's affair, uh, he's drawn into a uh, bitter land dispute between his client, a farmer, and a powerful uh, and unscrupulous builder trying to steal the farmer's land, Antonio Vitelli. And it, it gradually becomes clear to Jim uh, that his wife's affair and the land dispute are connected. But how? Uh, hmm. how? He, suddenly he, he suddenly finds himself in a... In a, in, a, in a desperate fight to save his marriage and family while still trying to defend his client's land. And uh, then uh, he and Vitelli have meetings. Uh, Vitelli tries to buy him with money, give him a lot of business. Uh, and when none of that works, uh, Vitelli finally plays his hand. Uh, Jim will change his survey to show the builder owns the land, or Vitelli will destroy uh, Jim's marriage and family. Well, mm. now Jim's back is to the wall as he prepares to testify in a very contentious court battle. And it raises the question, does his honor mean so much to him that he's willing to risk losing all that he holds most dear? And while, while he's struggling with that, Leslie uh, is contending with uh, coming to terms with what she's done as she uh, strives uh, for a way to help Jim fight Vitelli and redeem uh, herself in the eyes of the man she still loves. So what was the motivation to make a land dispute uh, with a contentious court battle, a major subplot of the book? Well, because I'm a land surveyor, and so I could write with authority uh, on that and on that subject, I could draw upon my own experiences in the profession, and I have appeared as expert witness in court cases. And uh, a lot, I, what I really did was take uh, a few outstanding events in my career and combine them into one uh, mm -hmm. land dispute and uh, court case. Uh, and uh, including uh, where I had to go to Rutgers University for help in identifying a tree even. Uh, but this is the fascinating part of it. You know, a lot of people think surveying is just that they see a guy standing behind the instrument along the highway. There's a lot more to uh, surveying than that. Uh, it's, with all the it's detective work and land disputes and court battles, uh, the heart and soul, really, of land surveying is the reestablishment of uh, original and ancient boundaries. Uh, and it can be a particularly daunting task in the original 13 colonies where the settlers just uh, grabbed land uh, here and there without benefit even of, of surveys. As you created this character, uh 
James Schroeder, this highly principled man, as you called him, uh, seems like, though, in the midst of, of all that he is facing, these incredible challenges in his marriage and his business, he develops an obsession. Yes, he does. Uh, he is actually going downhill initially after Leslie's affair comes to light. Uh, again, he... he uh, Yes, he, he goes to malls and watches uh, to see what's going on. Uh, uh, if, the, if these clandestine meetings between uh, people who are are cheating, and he's determined, you know, as if he can cure all the ills of the world, he wants to put a stop to that. Of course, we know that he, he can't, but he is actually starting to get a little sick uh, over it until his uh, buddy, Dan, his best friend, Dan, uh, catches him and uh, convinces him to stop this uh, and uh, just go somewhere, get away from it all, and, and at which time he returns to the farm that he grew up on in, uh, in Willow Creek, uh, Pennsylvania. And there he... Uh, he he, uh, his, his mother and father, who have always been so level-headed, uh, they, they help him think straight. They don't know what's going on. He keeps it a secret. He doesn't want anybody to know what Leslie did for fear that uh, uh, if it gets back to the kids, it could really cause uh, havoc within the family if they turn against her. So he's constantly trying to keep that under wraps. And this is one of the things that Vitelli uh, intends to expose, mm. uh, amongst other things. Sure. And, of course, you know, Jim, as you create this incredible plot line, uh, he needs answers, so he's ready to even face his wife's lover. Yes, and he does face his wife's lover uh, because seeking some answers as to why it happened, how long it went on, and and uh, trying to determine whether she still loves him and whether the lover loved her, which he didn't, of course, which he admits. And, of course, in the, he, fi he finally loses it hmm. and uh, pops the guy once, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess we can forgive him for that, can't we? <laughs> yeah, I think so. All of us may uh, feel that same way. Uh, now, does his good friend Angelo, does he play a major part in the book? Yes, he does. Uh, he's, he's also a good friend and a neighbor. And he's, because of the strange behavior of his, his wife, he's becoming uh, suspicious. Uh, however, um, <laughs> I'd rather let the reader find out okay. what's going on there. All right. Now... Any of these characters, uh, I mean, do these come from people you know or a combination? No, they're, they're a combination, a composite of, mm -hmm. of, of various people. Uh, the, the only, uh, the, the story is fictitious, uh, except for the surveying end of things where I actually drew upon real-life experiences, as I said before. Now, the... Uh, Dialogue is pretty blunt. Yes, yes. Well, I, I wanted to be realistic. Uh, I see. I, I, I feel I can actually transport myself, so to speak, and actually, when when I wrote these these uh, confrontations between various people, uh, I felt I was actually there. And what would be the natural mm. dialogue sure. between them? What what would be said? What was plausible? And I feel, I feel, of course, it's my own book, but I feel I did a pretty good job. There could be obviously very heated and emotional exchanges taking place. Yes, yes, there's yes. a lot of that. Yes. Well, the title is the three keys. I guess we'll have to find out what the three keys are. I'm sure that's an important part of this. And the author is Don Ackerman. Don, tell us how to get your book. Oh, boy. <laughs> I understand that it is already, uh, you can get it through Amazon. 
uh, and also through Barnes & Noble and authorhouse.com. Go to their bookstore. Uh, it's, there's three places that you can obtain the book. Any closing thought you'd like to leave with us? To find greater happiness and inner contentment by being a good person. Resist becoming part of a dog-eat-dog selfish society. Don't let the system change you for the worse. Your relationship with those you love is the most important thing in life, not money, not sex, and not material things. And live by the golden rule, which I really believe in very firmly. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I think you will find inner peace and you'll feel good about yourself. And there was another message in there for, for young people. Be all that you can, even though it was particularly aimed at land surveyors in the, in the book because of what I saw happening in a profession uh, where they were treating it like just a job, not a profession. It really applies to anyone in any field of work. We all get caught up in day-to-day living and settle into a groove and suddenly the years have gone by. Then in reflection, we realize we have not been all we could have been. To all those young people out there, don't let it happen to you, is, is what I'm saying. But don't hurt anybody in the process of achieving, achieving your dream either. Know where to draw the line. Well, Don, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. No, thank you, uh, I, and Steve. I, uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> 